Hey, welcome. This is Pastor Tyler Whitcomb. I just want to say on behalf of the leadership of Fos Church, we are so glad that you're checking out the Fos Church podcast. At Fos, we believe in the authority of God's word and the ability it has through the power of the Holy Spirit to change the hearts of mankind and to mold and shape its readers into the image of Christ. And so we pray that these messages would do just that that you would hear God's word and be changed by it. Lastly, our encouragement is, if you do not belong to a local Bible-believing church, that you would do so, because a podcast will never allow you to serve the purpose that God has called you into belonging to the church. Well, good morning, church. My name is Tyler Wickham. If we haven't had the privilege of meeting, uh, I have the uh, privilege to be the lead pastor here at Fos Church, and um, if you are new to Fos or you've never been to Fos, one of the things that we do is, is we just walk through books of the Bible. Now, when we uh, just did these baby dedications, what we said was that a biblical worldview matters, that we want to train and instruct and equip our children here at this church with a knowledge of God that we hold the Bible in a high esteem. We believe that the Bible is God's revelation to mankind. And so when, when, if people were to ask you, what is the Bible about? It's about God. More than anything else, it's about God. From Genesis to Revelation, that's what you'll see. That's what you'll find on the pages of Scripture, is that this is a God story. Um, and maybe you're here this morning and you would say, hey, you know what? Uh, this whole idea of the Christian worldview, the Bible, like that's so yesterday, that, that's so, we're beyond that. We, we've progressed as a society and culture and, and we've deemed the Bible to be untrue or we've deemed the Bible's wisdom to be faulty. And maybe you're here and you say, hey, the Bible is just a make-believe fable that has stories that maybe have a hint of morality in them, and, but they're just a fable. And maybe you'd say the, 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 the morality is questionable at best. And, and so maybe you're, hearing, you're wrestling with some of those things and then you maybe ask the question, is, 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 is the Bible just a story that weak-minded people believe in order to feel better about life after death? These are some of the criticisms of the Christian worldview of faith, that, that we're just weak-minded people that are scared of dying. And so we've had to create this story to feel better about there not being anything after the world. Um, that couldn't be further from the truth. The Bible has a, a lot of truth to it, a lot of reason to believe. And the Bible's not a story about life after death. It talks about that. It talks about things, a place like heaven and a place like hell. The Bible gives descriptors of those things. But it's not primarily a book about life after death. The Bible is not a book about how to do life. It's not a roadmap to life. Although it gives you instructions on how to live, that's not the, the premise of it. It's not a book about finances. It's not your financial planner, although it has a lot to say about finances. Again, the Bible is about God. You go from Genesis to Revelation the continual theme, the thing you see all throughout it is Jesus. So, hey, Jesus doesn't show up till Matthew. He's concealed in the old and he's revealed in the new. And so we have a Christocentric, a Christ-centered view of the scriptures that we, we believe that Jesus is there at Genesis. 
When God says we're going to make man in our image, he's talking about a triune God. That he was the light of creation, giving light to all men. John would say that. Well, in Genesis 1, God says, let there be light. And there was light. Well, guess what? There wasn't a sun yet. So what was the, life of, what was the light of creation? It was Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation. Well, where's Jesus in Revelation? He's the light again. Revelation 22, a new Jerusalem. There will no longer be a need for the sun for Jesus himself will be our light. You can't escape Jesus on the pages of scripture. He's all over it. And so again, we want to instruct the children here at Foes Church with a biblical worldview. Why? Because it's going to teach them about God and because it teaches them about God, it's gonna teach them about life. To the truest and fullest extent, you will not understand life apart from God. You will not understand life apart from God and the meaning of life. We have this quote on a sign in our house. My, lo- my wife loves AR Workshop. Anybody ever been to AR Workshop? You know, it's, it's maddening. <laughs> um, although she was very good about it. One time I said, babe, our walls are just busy. And the next day a bunch of signs were down, so it was great. Um, but we have this sign still in our house. It's right by our front door, and it says this. Uh, It's from C.S. Lewis. Look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else. If you're not familiar with Clive Staples Lewis, uh, he was considered the most reluctant atheist in all of uh, England. He had no business. He wanted nothing to do with the Christian faith and yet he would go on to become a believer in Jesus and one of the most powerful voices the Christian faith has seen in the modern era. A brilliant, beautiful mind. And maybe you say, hey, hey, that sounds well and good, but where's the proof about the validity that the scriptures have? I love your questions. You're just asking all the right ones today. Um, the Bible was written over the course of 1,500 years, by over, penned by 40 different men. And I know, I know, if you're a skeptic in here, you've got questions about Christianity, faith, penned by men, that, that's a problem, right? One author. Yeah, the Bible was penned by, by, by men, but one author inspired by the Holy Spirit. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is God-breathed. God-breathed, that God inspired these authors to say what they were saying. They were a scribe. As simple as the authors of scripture weren't generating this knowledge or this wisdom on their own. They were writing under an inspiration. They were being told what to say. And we can see that because all 40 different authors are writing about the same theme, the same idea. God, and it was written on the course uh, over three continents, multiple languages, and yet cohesion in the message about God. The message is God. Again, not a history book. It contains history. It's not a book on relationships. It speaks to relationships. It speaks to God and his character and his nature. And, And some arguments made against the Bible do not consider the fact that the Bible has generally five literary genres. And so without the idea of knowledge of poetry and context, people hijack passages of Scripture and say, hey, this is what you guys believe? Hey, well, we've talked about that here before. You know, the Bible, you can point to a verse where it says the four corners of the world. Are you saying the Bible speaks to a flat earth? No, we, we, we don't stand there. We don't have tinfoil hats, I promise. I left those at home. Um, but the four corners of the earth, north, south, east, and west, that, that God is about his glory 
around the world, everywhere that you could go, everywhere that you could see, God cares about his glory. And so, yes, you can hijack things within the scriptures and, and take them out of their context and take them out of a, a literary genre and you make a, an argument to be something that the Bible's not even saying. Another point that you could see that there's validity to these scriptures is the accuracy to which our manuscripts show. Um, in 1947, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls. Any, I know we have some seniors in here. I don't know if anyone was alive during that time, though. Uh, show of hands. Uh, Jim Thompson, that, that bald guy right there. Um, but we, uh, in 1947, they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, which had Old Testament narratives, uh, manuscripts that were dated a thousand years before the, co- any, er, the early, a thousand years earlier before any other copy that we had. Guess what they showed? 99.5% similarity, accuracy. And I love the heart of the skeptic. What about that 0.5%? All of those errors are grammatical and spelling. And given the uh, uh, volume of copies that we have are very easily understood the truth of God's word. So when you hold that book in front of you, and you wonder, hey, is this historically accurate? You, you can believe that. Another point, people die all the time for religion that they have believed in. But here's the, you can have a, you can die for what's a deceived lie, but you don't die for a known lie. And so the authors of the scriptures, these guys penning the things that they say, hey, we saw this happen. We saw it with our own two eyes. I mean, when, when Peter and John are getting beat outside the temple and the Sanhedrin says, stop talking about this. What do they say? Peter sends up and says, I can't help but to speak about what I've seen and I've heard and I've touched those wounds. I touched the wounds of the risen Christ. I can't help but testify to that reality. So go ahead, beat me, take my life, do, do whatever you gotta do, but I can't help but to speak about what I've seen heard. Um, and so at the moment, people are getting torched in the first century. And you are a author of these texts saying, this is what I saw. This is the Jesus I saw risen from the dead. And people are getting burned alive and you're going to go to that stake? If, if I'm that author, hey, it was all fun and well and good, but hey, I wasn't all that serious. Right? I'm backing out the moment I'm seeing people getting torched. And so we believe that there are, there's validity to what we believe about the faith. And so again, this might have been exhaustive, but I promise there was a point to it all because this book, again, is about God. And if it's about God, it's about God's love for his people. It's about God's intimacy that he wants with his people. He had it in the Garden of Eden. When God created the world and everything in it, he said there was a shalom, a peace, a perfect unity that was taking place. And he had it with men and women, Adam and Eve, And sin comes in and it fractures the shalom. And the rest of the book is about God desiring intimacy with his people. You see it at the temple, God with us. You see it in the prophets, God with us. You see it in the person of Jesus, God with us. You see it when the Holy Spirit comes to live among us, God with us. And in Revelation It's going to be when God redeems and reconciles all things, God with 
us. Do you know what the end of Revelation ends with? You might say heaven. It ends with a wedding, a wedding banquet. I can't help but to see the book of the scriptures as a love letter that God has for his people, that God wants love with his people. And so, yes, we want children that are raised up in this church to know that God loves them, that God desires relationship with them and that they, they, that they can trust this, that they can trust this. And if you're here and you still say, hey, I just have doubts, I have questions, there are things that just don't make sense to me, I'd love to sit with you, I'd love to talk with you, I'd love to chat and wrestle with some of those doubts that you might have, but I think there's a monsoon of evidence that you can't help but deal with that the scriptures offer. Um, and so with that said, we're, we're going to go into the, the book, the book that we trust, the book that we believe has validity, and we believe that it's God's revelation. We, we've been traveling through a series, and we talked this last week that even though these are ancient stories, they still touch on human experience. So we had Saul, the first king of Israel, get named. And he's he's going to be the, the king over God's chosen people. And in that, Saul doesn't seem like a bad choice from the exterior. We, we said that he had a, an appearance that he was tall and handsome and chiseled. We said it was a lot like if you were to look at me, you could give a good picture of what Saul looked like. Um, I promise I'm not a narcissist. That was a joke. Um, but in that, it, he's got qualities. He's, he's, a, he's a warrior, right? He goes out and he defeats the Ammonites. His first, his first war battle, he, he goes out and he does work. But weave throughout his story, you see his insecurities at play. And we said that these insecurities, when unchecked, will fuel or give way to things that are harmful, traits that are harmful. And for Saul, it led him to sin against God. Led for him to sin against God. And so last week where we left off was Saul um, and his son Jonathan. They developed this army there were about 3,000 men, and, and ultimately what ends up happening is, is Jonathan goes out, his son Jonathan, and he defeats this, this squadron or the squad of soldiers that were at Gibeah. And the Philistine army was so large that it had these squads of military all around Israel. Why? We'll keep you at bay. You try and do something, we're, we're ready any which way you start this fight. Well, well, Jonathan says, hey, God's on our side, let's go. And, and, and he takes out one of these squads. And what we said was, was that it's like one of those situations where you see a, a, a dichotomy between brothers, where there's like one brother that's really small, like a Danny DeVito, and then one large brother that's larger, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger. Any Twins fans here? It's on Netflix, watch it later. Um, are we awake this morning? We need more coffee? Um, again, now you're picturing me like Arnold Schwarzenegger. Stop doing that. Uh, but it's like you beat up the little brother, and then the next day the big brother shows up. And Saul said, when, when, when Jonathan and the men took out the, the squad of soldiers at Gibeah, um, Saul makes an announcement throughout all Israel. He says, sound the horns. We're going to let everyone know that I, Saul, defeated a squad of soldiers at Gibeah. And so you're maybe left thinking, whoa, I thought it was Jonathan. It was Jonathan. Saul's taking credit for something that wasn't his. Again, insecurity being fueled here, left, being left unchecked. 
And so he makes this, this claim, and then he says, and, and, and guess what? The Philistines are worried about big, bad Saul, baby. Come on now, right? He's, he's calling the people to get behind him. I'm the guy. I'm the man. I'm making our enemies worried. And then guess what? Big brother's showing up. And he's showing up at the front door. Let's see how big and bad you are, so we're not too scared of you. And so where the story left off last week was Saul and Jonathan, father and son, are surrounded by this massive military. And they're the only ones that have weapons. All, all of Saul and Jonathan's men, they, 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 they don't have anything. Nothing but this. And so they begin hiding and running, and they're now in a dire situation. And so... Um, Today, what we get to see from our text is the response to being in one of those two situations. Uh, anyone ever feel like you've been in that place? Uh, I'm not saying you, you've, you know, had an army surrounding your neighborhood. But I'm talking figuratively at this point. Any of you ever be in that situation where you feel like, hey, from every angle, I'm just feeling it. I'm feeling it at work. I'm feeling it at home. I'm feeling it out in the world, like just from every angle financially, whatever the struggles are, you're going to just start feeling like, hey, we're in trouble. I'm in trouble. And I need someone or something to come through. Again, that's where Israel's left, where Jonathan's left. And we can have generally one to two responses. And I know that what I'm going to say next is a, a political connotation. I'm not going there. But generally, the two responses one can have when you're in a situation like that is that you can demonstrate faith, a trust, a confidence, a dependence, a belief that God is going to come through. Or you can respond with fear, worries, and doubts, and things that cripple the soul. And the thing that I want us to, if you miss everything else that I'm going to say this morning, I want you to catch this. Faith and fear have no fellowship. Faith and fear have no fellowship because what faith is going to do is it's going to bolster your belief and trust in God and fear robs us of that trust. Fear tells us that we cannot trust or have confidence in the fact that God is bigger and powerful, more powerful than the circumstances that we face. And I don't say this to minimize how you feel or what you think because Ultimately, you say, hey, if you knew my circumstances, if the Bible knew my circumstances, there'd be just a little asterisk there. that say, oh, you're allowed to worry and have fear in this situation. You know, in this situation, that, this worry and doubt, that makes sense. No, the, but the Bible doesn't have that. Again, not trying to minimize your circumstance. And even one of the things that we talked about in our seniors' Bible study the last few weeks is that there is a distinction between concern and worry, right? Concern, um, this, this idea where it's a, focused, uh, it's a focused effort, it's a focused intentional uh, way of thinking. But worry and doubt, these are things that lead us away from God. Fear robs us of intimacy with God because it's in the moments that we exercise faith, trust, confidence and dependence on God that we learn more about who God is. It's like in those moments where we can say, God, I don't know 
what you're going to do. I don't know how you're going to come through, but I trust you even despite my circumstances, the things that I see around me. And, and far too often, we try to define God through human experiences when God should be the things that defines our human experience. It's, it's, just a, it's a flip. It's not a semantic. It's important just to see that with that. God defines human reality, not the other way around. Human realities don't define God. God defines human reality. And so with that said, I want us to look at this idea of faith and fear demonstrated in our passage. 1 Samuel 14, verses 1 through 2 says this, One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison of the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah and the pomegranate of Magron. The people who were with him were about 600 men. Again, this 3,000 army has now dwindled to 600 people. The people that once were so behind Saul, the people that once said, hey, if anybody doubts that Saul is our guy, let's put him to death. I mean, some of you all do that with our presidents, right? Hey, you, you don't think our guy is the guy, then we'll put you to death. But th- this is how serious and ferocious these people are about Saul and, and being behind him and trusting him. But now, massive, difficult times come into play. What happens? The people flee. They no longer are behind him. And so again, remember last week, these people are left in a dire situation, completely outnumbered, and they begin running and hiding and hiding in dens and in caves. And we said, hey, that's not a, a bad idea. If you, if, you, if you were in their shoes and their circumstances, you'd probably be saying, hey, yeah, where, where, where's the nearest hideout? Where, where can I run? Saul began acting in disobedience towards God, and that never ends well. And now we see Saul responding. We see Jonathan responding. Jonathan says, all right, let's, let's go cross over. We, there, there's another garrison. I, I mean, we just got to keep doing this one step at a time. God's going to continually show up. So, so, so let's go. Let's go. Let's do this. And how does Saul respond? How does Saul respond from our text? It says that he's hiding. And, that, and this is not the first time Saul hides. Again, where you see the insecurity birthed, where you first see it happen is, hey, Saul, you're going to be the king. Okay, we're going to make this big public announcement and declaration of it. And all right, all right, Samuel, the prophet gets up and he says, we're going to announce to you for the very first time, our king, Saul. And, and he's not there. Where is he? He's hiding. He's hiding. And, and, and you start seeing him that very first time, you start seeing that insecurity at play. Right? He doesn't feel as though he can do what God has called him to do in this moment, what the people are calling him to do in this moment. And so throughout this story, Saul has continually revealed an identity crisis, an identity crisis. He's not sure of himself, and yet he wants to portray an image. Right? You see that last week, in the, in the passage, the, the last passage we looked at for Samuel 13, well, when Sound the horns, let all of Israel know that I, Saul, have defeated a squad of soldiers of the Philistines, Philistine soldiers. He wants people to see, hey, I'm this, I'm that, I'm I'm powerful, I matter. Again, that touches on the human experience from the earliest of ages. In the first six months, you want to know that you're seen, that you matter, that you're loved, that you're powerful. You want all of those things. That's innate to humanity, 
but you leave those feelings unchecked and you don't root them in a proper identity and you allow those to fester and grow, they, they produce things that are not good. And we're seeing that lived out in the life of Saul. He has this false self of wanting people to believe I'm this and I'm that. But guess what? When push comes to shove, reality comes out. Because right? we can all experience what Saul feels, right? You can try and find your validation in social media and likes and follows and comments and followers and, and all that. You can say, hey, this, this shows me that I matter, that I'm special, that I'm loved, that I'm... Right? We, we talk about that, that dopamine hit that you get when that stuff comes in. Or you can run to other places. Food, alcohol, drugs, sex, relationships. You, you can look for all these different things that tell you, I'm loved, I matter. I'm special, I'm powerful, I'm in control. But when, 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 when life really hits, when the hard days come, what's inside will come out. You can only portray a false self for so long. And so Saul here, in the moment of dire need, shows that TikTok Saul is not the same as real Saul. Right? The thing he's portraying to the world, the videos he's putting out, hey, I'm this powerful leader, Philistines, man, we're a stench to the Philistines. It wasn't real. It wasn't real. And an interesting detail to know from the text is that Jonathan doesn't want his dad to know. Why? Maybe, you're, maybe you remember from the text, right? Hey, maybe, maybe it's that Jonathan doesn't want his dad to take the glory that he might have received. Right, because Saul's already done that. Saul has already taken credit for something his son did last you know, chapter. And so he's like, hey, you know what? I'm going to do this on my own because I don't want dad to come in and take the glory that's due to me. Well, uh, that wouldn't be a, maybe a bad thought or a bad assumption, but I don't think that's true of the text. Because when you're living within God's will, when God's glory matters more than yours, personal glory goes out the door. Jonathan is not looking for the nation of Israel thing. Jonathan's great. Jonathan is looking for people that say that God is great. And we should live our lives that way. It, it, we should live our lives saying, man, I want people to see God for his beauty and his glory. Jesus encourages his followers to live in such a way that your good deeds would shine a light that would reflect or move people to worship God. So why do you want a good testimony? Why do you want to be seen as uh, a stand-up individual? So that people might see God. So people might see God. And so in these moments, um, Jonathan is not looking to, to steal glory or have glory or keep glory. That's not the point. I think at this point, what you can see through Jonathan's life is that he wants to be obedient to God and the writing's on the wall. Saul has no business of being obedient to God. He, he is throwing that out the window. It's about Saul. And so Jonathan didn't want anything to come between him and his faith and, and that he had in God. And look what he says in verse six. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised and maybe that the Lord will work for us for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Nothing. I want you, if you do anything in your Bibles, if you underline, highlight, circle, do something with that word, nothing because it's important. 
Uh, I mean, Jonathan is, is demonstrating this great faith that he has in God that, that nothing is going to stop God from working and moving in the ways that he wants to. Nothing. And, and, and I don't know who needs to hear that this morning. Maybe you're here and you look at the enemies of Christianity, you look at the enemies of a biblical worldview, and they seem to be growing and becoming insurmountable. Maybe you'd say, hey, from every side, though this Christian worldview is being attacked and we're worried. Maybe you're worried. I mean, I just heard a stat that last year was the first year that church attendance was reported in this nation below 50%. It's this declining. It just is. And so, you know, hey, I know what you all think about pastors. I promise you, I'm not living large, but this is my livelihood. This is where, this is where I believe the Lord has called me to, to, to be, and this is my vocation. I can hear that the, the, the church is leaving in droves. My call is not to worry. My call is still not to worry, because guess what? I know the enemy doesn't win. I know the enemy doesn't win, and Again, nothing is going to stop God, you, right? You may be looking at, you know, big corporations and money and the, the growing atheist nun population in our society and culture, or you start looking at all the various reasons or enemies of the church and of Christ, nothing is going to stop God, not corporate, not universities, and all throughout history, we've seen that, that nothing has prevailed against Christ and his church. I want you to think about this with me for just a moment. Um, if you were a follower of Jesus, a lover of Jesus in the first, second, and third century in Rome, you had great um, reason to be fearful for your life. Just did. I mean, they were, hey, this, this off-brand Jewish sect of Judaism needs to be taken care of. And so Rome, the, the ruler of the known world, a ge geography lesson real quick, Rome ruled from England to India in the first century. If you've looked at a map, that's huge. That's where they ruled. That's the power they had. They had a massive empire army that, that covered that landmass. And they were, they were ready to stop anything that was a threat to the Roman Empire. And yet this this group of 120 followers of Jesus changed the known world in four centuries. In four centuries, Christianity became the world religion. How does that happen when your opponent was Rome? That's a great question. Millennia later, um, a few years back, I was able to go to Rome. A lover of Jesus. I got a tour of the catacombs these underground tunnels and places where Christians would hide. I got to go to the Colosseum where, where Christians were fed to the lions as entertainment. I got to stand outside the Colosseum with Syrian refugees and teach and preach about the goodness of Jesus. A lover of Jesus on the soil of once considered the greatest enemy to the Christian faith. God will prevail. Nothing will stop them. Starbucks, don't put uh, the message of Christianity in their cups. Don't worry about it. I promise it's okay. 
We're going to make it. That's not, that's not the thing that we should keep us up at night. And so Jonathan um, believed that God would come through, that nothing was going to thwart God's plan. And we have every bit of reason to believe that too, all throughout history. So Jonathan and his armor bearer make their way towards the Philistine garrison full of faith. Verse 11 tells us that, that the Philistine garrison saw Jonathan and his armor bearer coming over the hill. And as they're coming over the hill, they start, the Philistines are like, all right, everybody, you know, armor up because the Israelites are coming out of their holes and their dens and their caves. And that wasn't true. It was just these two guys. They, they were like spy kids, you know, walking up. Like there's no reason to be fearful yet. Their, the fear was being instilled. And so there's this moment that the Philistines are saying, okay, is this going to happen? And then this, look at what happens. This is what 14 says. Again, this is not a army of people. This is Jonathan and his armor bearer. And this is what it says. And that first strike, which Jonathan and his armor bearer made, killed about 20 men within as if it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. They take out 20 men by themselves. I want to learn that martial art, right? Like, but you know, I could kick like that. Um, <laughs> okay, actually, it wasn't a martial art. More than likely, it's a bow and, uh, slingshot. But nonetheless, that's still pretty sweet. 20, 20 guys get taken out by two. By two. Their faith in God allowed them to prevail, and yet God does something even bigger than that. Look at verse 15. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. God caused an earthquake to take place. Because these two men are responding and believing that, I mean, full of faith that God's going to come through for them. And, and these Philistines, you know, they're like, wow, man, this is a powerful first blow. And now the earth is quaking. And so they begin running. They, they, they trembled. And there was a very great panic. And they're running for their lives. Look how the tables have turned. Right? The Israelites were the people that were just running and hiding in dens and in caves. And now... The Philistines experience the power of God, and what's their response to that? To run, to hide, to flee. Don't underestimate the ways that God comes through for his people. Maybe you say, hey, I'm in that dire situation. I need God to come through. And maybe what God does for you is he brings an earthquake. I doubt that's what Jonathan anticipated. I doubt that's what he expected. But maybe for you, you're in that dire situation and you say, hey, my boss is just a, a hindrance to my growth. My, my boss just ruins me. I come home, I'm defeated every day because of their insecurity, the way they're treating me. And you say, God, I need you to come through for me. And maybe your thought is, you know, I'm, I'm asking God for this to happen and my hope and trust is gonna be that God removes my boss and maybe, just maybe, it's that God removes you. The government takes you out of that situation. And you, most of us say, hey, that's not what I was asking for. I was hoping for a, a different sense of set of circumstances here. But maybe God provides by taking you out as opposed to what you're hoping that he takes out. But nonetheless, the same outcome. 
that God came through and removed you from that situation. But maybe not always in the ways that we hope or anticipate. I doubt Jonathan believed an earthquake happened, was gonna happen. And so the, the, the Philistines begin dispersing every which way the tables are turned. And, and Saul finds out now, because remember before, Jonathan's like, hey, dad doesn't need to know about this. He's gonna try and thwart God's plans. We're, we're not even gonna play that game. And now Saul's watchman says, hey, these Philistines, they're running every which way. Saul, Saul, come, come here. And Saul's like, okay, let's get all of our men together. Um, who's missing? Who caused this to happen? Well, Jonathan's not here. Okay, right? He, he, he needs to know that there was something that caused, in the midst of that, in the midst of Saul seeing that these people are going every which way, he says, now is the time to strike. I can capitalize on this moment, and then maybe people will see me as strong and powerful again, right? He's trying to piggyback off his son's heroic act of faith. But in this moment, He's still not depending on God. He's depending on self to the point where the priest that was with him that was praying and discerning God's will, he says, hey, stop. Stop trying to discern what God's will is. We got to go. You guys all follow me. And um, Saul, in verse 24, requires the people, his followers, his, soul, his army, to take an oath. And he says that from this day, we're not going to eat until I've avenged myself from my enemies. And I think if you, if you have your Bibles open, you look at verse 24, you're my enemies because the Philistines were coming after God's people, God's nation. Who are you, Saul? These are not your enemies. These are God's enemies. And yet his, his thinking has gotten so twisted. And God help us to not get too consumed with our own plans and our own missions and our own shadow motives and, and things that, you know, we, that we want to see happen in our world that, that we miss God's will and God's plan and things that God is doing to accomplish his purposes. Um, in your header above where Saul make the oath uh, for the soldiers, the header says, Saul's rash vow. And you know who wasn't there to hear or to respond or to follow that vow, that oath? You know who ate? Jonathan. Jonathan ate. And check this out. Verse 27. But Jonathan had not heard his father's charge to the people with the oath. So he put on out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it into the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright then one of the people says, hey, your father strictly charged the people with an oath saying, cursed the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. Then Jonathan, Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted a little of this honey. You can see the tension building between father and son, Saul and Jonathan. Right? He says, hey, I, I know what dad says, but you see how twisted dad has gotten? He's caused a problem for this land. And I'm not looking to be obedient to him in this moment over and above being obedient to God. And guess what? Guess what you need for battle? Guess what you need for war, for strength? Food. That's disregarding his father's oath. Um, they're approaching God and his will completely 
differently. And Saul begins to pray and he begins to ask and he begins to say, what should we do with the Philistines? And it says that God does not answer him. To which Saul believes, okay, well, that, that, that could be because there's, there's uh, unrepentant sin and, well, it's not me. I guess it's Jonathan. Jonathan's the problem. And so he begins to put out this idea that, hey, well, Jonathan needs to atone for this. Jonathan needs to die. Um, and this is, what, this is how the people respond to Saul's hope. Verse 45, Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not be one hair on his head that falls to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Do the people, do the people that are following Jonathan at this moment believe that he brought salvation to them? Well, it says so. It says that Jonathan's responsible. But then if you interpret scripture with scripture, sometimes even in the same exact verse, look at what it says, that Jonathan had worked with God this day. That salvation came to Israel, not because of what Jonathan in his own strength has done, but because Jonathan living in obedience to God and his plan, they saw victory. They saw life come from obedience to God. Now, I want to take, um, make, make a comment real quick. It says he worked with God, right? He was obedient. He was faithful. He was true and right towards God. Whether or not the people ransomed him, he was very secure. Jonathan was secure. Why? Because when you live in obedience to God, nothing can be taken from you. Nothing can be taken from you. The Apostle Paul would say this in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The beauty, the, the thing that as Christians we can face any obstacle, any difficulty, hardship, and have faith be the thing that fuels us is because ultimately we know that nothing can be taken from us. If the idea and the goal of life is to be in the presence of God and to experience him and to enjoy him, then death is just a doorway to a greater, fuller presence of God, right? And so um, Jonathan was able to hold on to faith because nothing could be taken from him. And if we look at the two narratives play out of faith and fear, it would seem obvious that faith is the right answer. I'm sure pop quiz, no open notes. I told you, okay, don't let your neighbor see, but what's the right answer? Should you live your life with faith or with fear? Regardless of your religious belief, regardless of your political leanings, most of us could say, hey, uh, I, we can see the negative effects of fear. Nobody likes living in fear or having that, that crippled feeling in the soul. We know that faith is the right answer. And sometimes to act in faith will require you to walk through fear. Again, they don't have fellowship. Fear is not going to lead you into a greater faith. But almost all the times that when you have to choose between faith and fear, they're both present. They're almost always 
both present. And so as we close, I want to read this quote on faith. Faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk out onto it. Faith is a footbridge that you don't know will hold you up over the chasm until you're forced to walk onto it. And I want to say this as we close. I want to say this as we close because if anyone tells you that to exercise faith is easy, I promise you they've never exercised faith because it's not easy and it's not always fun and it doesn't necessarily remove the thing that could cause you to fear. You know, when Daniel gets thrown into the lion's den, the lions don't become less lion. It's not like they dwarf into a little house kitty cat. And okay, there's your answer. No, it says, if anything, that they've been starved. You'd have even greater reason to fear in that moment. Or when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are going to get thrown into the fiery furnace. Maybe you've heard that story. It's not like the flames dwindle. They increase. They become more powerful. Again, another reason to fear. When Jesus calls Peter out of the boat, Matthew 14, it's not like the storm ceases. The storm is still going, and yet he's been called out to it. As Christians, when we experience faith and we demonstrate faith and we exercise faith, it doesn't mean that life isn't still hard. Jesus, in the most prolific sermon ever preached, he preached this in Matthew chapter 7, that the wise man and the foolish man, they both build houses. And they build them on different foundations. One, one builds on the sand, and it's a weak foundation, and when the storm comes, it cannot withhold, and it's destroyed. And the other, the wise man, the one who hears my words and puts them into practice, he builds a foundation on a rock. And when the storm comes, and it hits that house, it stands. Here's the thing that sometimes people miss. The storm hits both houses. Faith in Jesus does not alleviate difficulties, struggles, hardships. It's just that you have an advocate with you in them. That Jesus promises to be a friend that's closer than a brother. He promises to never leave, to never forsake. And we can build our confidence on that love and that trust and that commitment. And it's demonstrated when Jesus shows you how committed he is to you. That it was for the joy that was set before him that he would endure the cross. That joy was a people. A people of faith that would put their faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus would die for the sin that plagued your life. He would die so that you could be reconciled to God, that you could experience the joy and the fullness and relationship with God. That unity, that shalom that was broken in the garden, Jesus made a way for it to be restored. For it to be restored and that you could actually truly experience it, but it's going to require faith. Faith that you're not the hero. Faith that you're not the person that's going to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And I get, we live in the Midwest culture and that's the, the culture you, you were raised in and that you, you know, there, there's something to be said about hard work. I'm not discounting that. Be faithful at your workplace. Be faithful in the home. Work hard. Bible would tell you that. But you are not going to work your way into right standing with God. That's not going to happen. Because the currency 
that you that you have that you're playing with, you know, is is if it's works, if it's good works, if it's hey, I can just do enough to be right with God. He says, hey, that that currency is filthy rags. I don't accept that. That that's not the payment for what for what you need. You need a perfect, spotless, blameless sacrifice. Your life won't do it. But Jesus came and he did that for you, that you might experience relationship with God now and forever. We've said this, you can be fully, freely, forever forgiven today. Today. And we have a a monsoon of evidence that we talked at the beginning that you could trust that this is real and this is true and this is right. That Jesus really was a figure that came in the first century and changed the world as we know it. You don't have a calendar outside of the birth of Jesus. The calendar starts the moment Jesus comes to this world. Every Hindu, every Buddhist, every Muslim operates on a calendar that starts with Jesus' birth. That's an amazing reality. He's changed the world as we know it, and he can change your life. He's changed mine. He can change anybody's. But it starts with faith, belief in God, that he's greater, more powerful than anything else you could pledge allegiance to in this world. And so it's through confession and repentance. Confessing with your mouth. There's no magical prayer, no magical set of words that's gonna save you. It's an honest confession of the heart that Jesus, I give you my life. So if you're here today and you've never done that, I wanna encourage you to do that. You can bank your life on this truth and this reality. Let me pray for us.